standing by right now is the one and the only Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the million dollar man. <laughs> After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my go to my grave, testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> Uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> Who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Primetime with Sean Mooney. I hope you enjoyed the episode with the one and only Jerry Jarrett, our offering this past week. Uh, that was a very educational episode for me. Because uh, I had no idea Jerry was so influential in the world of professional wrestling and had such a big impact on the territories and even the man who would change it all forever, Vince McMahon. Uh, If you haven't checked it out, please do. Uh, You're not going to learn how to make his famous chicken salad. Uh, You'll have to get that from something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard for that. But we certainly learned a lot about Jerry Jarrett's influence in the business of professional wrestling over the years, and he is still at it. Thank you, Jerry Jarrett, for coming on PTSM. Another great episode here on Primetime as we welcome the Patriot, Del Wilkes. So it's time to get down to business with our guest this week, a man with a story of fulfilling a dream, falling victim to his darkest demons, and finding his way back. Let's get to a very inspirational episode of Primetime with Del Wilkes. Ding, ding, ding. Well, folks, there are an endless number of gimmicks that professional wrestlers have been given that they haven't exactly embraced. Uh, the Rooster and the Shockmaster come to mind, but no one was ever more suited to be the Patriot than Del Wilkes, and he joins us now here on Primetime. Hey, Del, how are you? I'm doing good, Sean. How are you? I'm fantastic. You know, I I really mean that because uh, I know you grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, and and, and, uh, really uh, just an awesome place. And you were born in the uh, very early 60s. And what a great time in America, a very turbulent time in America. But as far as uh, our patriotism and and being Americans, it was a great time. What do you remember uh, of growing up? And was that a big uh, instilled in your life early about being, uh, in a sense, a patriot? Yeah, I, um, you know, born in 61 yeah. and living through the 60s, which I think we would all agree was one of the more turbulent. I mean, yes. so much was going on in the 60s with civil rights and voting rights and, and women's rights. And, of course, the Vietnam War and the assassination of uh, President Kennedy, later his brother Robert Kennedy and yeah. Dr. King. And it was just so much going on. And... uh it was, uh, I do remember quite a bit of that, even though I was a youngster at the time, but um, very fortunate that I was brought up in a home, uh, not only my parents, but around my mom's parents and my dad's parents, people that just had a genuine love for this country, 
uh, a respect for this country, and I was taught that at an early age, and not that we're a perfect country, no. uh, but it's the greatest it's ever been. I mean, there's there's nothing like America, mm-hmm. and uh, and just a wonderful, wonderful place to live, and I'm, I'm, I'm very, very biased, and I think we all are uh, in that sense. Uh, I was fortunate to be uh, a South Carolinian, uh, to be a South Carolinian in a wonderful, wonderful state, again, that has played um, such a major role throughout history with with a lot of things. And uh, so very proud of my heritage, not only being a Wilkes, but being a South Carolinian and being an American. You know, and uh, as I mentioned, you know, growing up in that part of the country, and I have visited South Carolina many times, and um, I, I just think about, you know, like these Fourth of July towns and the way they, would, uh, they light up for... Uh, anything really when it comes to America and, you know, the 4th of July, as I mentioned, with fireworks. And that, it just kind of has like that Norman Rockwell kind of feel to it. And was uh, what was that like growing up for you? And, and I don't really know, uh, you know, what kind of a neighborhood you grew up, but uh, obviously sports was a big part of it. But tell me a little bit about that, that upbringing. Well, I was uh, raised in a very rural area mm-hmm. uh, right outside of Columbia, South Carolina. And we We've been in Columbia my whole life. Uh, my dad was born and raised here. My mom was actually born in North Carolina, but at a very early age, her family moved to South Carolina. So this is my roots. This is where my grandparents were born and raised. And a very rural area. I still have great memories of, of during the summer of of my mom and my grandmother going out and picking peas and butter beans and getting back to the house and literally sitting on a big porch, that sort of wraparound porch that you picture a lot of Southern homes to have and shelling beans and shelling butter beans. And, and, you know, my mom canning different things, different vegetables and and fruits and just really, really things that no longer are done in society, but just seem to be a, a lot of households and a lot of families did those type of things in the South. And, um, it was, um, I grew up around, not so much from my father, but from his dad and my dad's brothers, they were very sports oriented. They were huge university of South Carolina fans. Two of my dad's brothers graduated from the university of South Carolina through. So through them, I developed and, and a love of everything Gamecock, yep. football, baseball, <laughs> basketball, and yeah. just. Yeah. the tradition and history of of the football program at the University of South Carolina. So all of that, you know, it's through family. Not only does, you know, a love for your country and your state and your neighborhood and a responsibility uh, to those around you to help out if something is needed, not only does that come from inside your home, but it also comes from aunts and uncles and grandparents. And, uh, you know, it's just everyone that, that helps develop and build in you that love of state country your neighborhood yeah. uh that willingness to help and serve and i'm very thankful that uh for my background and upbringing yeah and i imagine early on that uh, you realized that you had this athletic ability i know you paid you played just a smidgen of baseball uh, along the way but you were a big sports fan but when did when did football really uh start to become a part of your life in the sixth grade, I um, 
I was a sports fanatic. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I mean, I just devoured everything I could. Yeah. And I'm talking at an early age, eight, nine years old. I'm buying Streets and Smiths uh, preseason guides to football, baseball, basketball. Huh. And um, sort of on ref- a reflection of how old I am, I was a huge Roman Gabriel fan. I can't tell you why a kid from South Carolina was a Los Angeles Rams yeah. fan. But oh, Roman Gabriel, Jack Snow, yeah. Merlin Olson, Rosie Greer, Lamar Lundy, all those guys. But for me, the sixth grade uh, was the first time I played organized football and just absolutely fell in love with it. I was a big kid, yeah. um, bigger than most kids that I, you know, were my friends that I grew up with. And I did. I, I, I just I played other sports, but football was the one that just it seemed that it was meant for me. And it was just a natural connection and love for it. And with my size, and it's fortunate the Lord gave me some athletic ability. It just was, uh, it was where I belonged. Yeah, now, uh, I hope I'm correct. You went, went to Irmo High School in, in Columbia? Is that? I did. It's, yeah. it's where my dad went to high school. He yeah. graduated from there in 1957. And, of course, um, uh, I graduated there in 1980. My brother and my sister huh. all went to Irmo and graduated from there. So uh, it was, uh, you know, part of our family, all my dad's yeah. brothers went there so uh, it um at the time when my dad was going there it was an extremely small school irma was a very rural area it was out in the country mm-hmm. about 12 miles outside of columbia but over the years columbia grew out toward irma and it, it just got to, to be a, a big area out here and uh it went from an extremely small school when my dad was there to uh when in 1980 i graduated it was the largest high school in the state of South Carolina. Wow. You know, and the reason I bring that up is that, uh, you know, organized sports is just such a wonderful uh, part of a kid's life if they can be a part of it. I'm, you know, and I'm not, not everyone is interested in it, but those that do. And uh, it really helps shape your, your, your life as you go forward. And especially with the tradition you've got going, you know, you've got family that have been in the same place. You're at this high school. So how did all that shape you, not just as an athlete, because you know how, how great an athlete you became, but just as a person? Well, it, it, it does so in so many ways. Yeah. Number one, you you learn and develop a sense of appreciation for friendships. Um, and developing those friendships, I think one thing about any sports team, uh, no matter what sport it is, uh, but football, and especially with the position I played, offensive line, mm-hmm. you learn that 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 units are built through uh, a friendship, a tightness, a bond uh, of not wanting to let those around you down. Uh, you want to be a dependable. You want to be one that they can depend on. They look to you and depend on you, and you know need you. And and, and as a group, an offensive line, I don't think there's any other group uh, in any form of sports that is more dependent on each other than that. So sports helped in helped me learn the value and appreciate the value of friendship and, and knowing that others depend on you and look to you, and I do the same to them. And it also helps teach and develop in you just a work ethic. I know you, you hear that a lot about sports, and it may sound cliche-ish, but it's true. It mm-hmm. is. It, you, you develop a work ethic, and you realize that, that – Hard work in what you do, dedication to your craft, uh, not only on the field, but when you're off the field, in a weight room, in a film room, 
Uh, they just go hand in hand. So not only does it help in development of friendship and tightness as a unit, but also your work ethic. And also, too, and you hear it from so many athletes, but again, it's true, just things aren't always going to go your way. Things aren't always going to be easy. They're going to be tough. You're going to have disappointments in life. You're going to have games where you go out and you just stink up the joint. You play horrible. Yeah. And uh, you get your face kicked in. And uh, another team embarrasses you or another player in one-on-one matchups just shows you up and embarrasses you. But you realize you can come back from that. Again, you count on that hard work and that dedication and that love of what you do. So all those things help uh, in life and, and later in life. They're saying that those are things you carry with you for the rest of your life. And you also yeah, absolutely. Uh, have, and you and you you try to stress those things to your children. And now that I'm a grandfather to my grandchildren. So they're just so valuable, not only in sports, but in life in general. Yeah, and as they say, you know, Dell, it's it's not so much what you do when you're you're standing up; it's what what you do when you get knocked down. And uh, I I preach that to my my children as well. But um, before we talk about you know you going to to college and and uh, you know doing having a great college career, uh, was wrestling a, a part of any of this along the way? Were you a fan? Did you uh, you know mess around with uh, you know trying to get in the ring at all? What what was going on at that point in your life? Wrestling was a very important part of my life. Um, I, uh, next to being a Gamecock fan and being a Los Angeles Rams fan mm-hmm. as a kid, uh, I was a huge wrestling fan. I, uh, growing up here in South Carolina, we had Mid Atlantic Championship yeah. wrestling. Oh, good stuff. Uh, you know, that back during the territory days. Yeah. And, uh, so I grew up uh, every Saturday morning listening to Bob Cottle and um, seeing Wahoo and uh, the Briscoe brothers and uh, Jack and Jerry and Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. As a matter of fact, the first show that I ever attended uh, live was at the Township Auditorium, a great building to, to watch a wrestling match in. Just a smaller venue, but the fans are right on top of you. Great acoustics, good lighting. And uh, I was 10 years old in 1971. Yeah. And a friend of the family, um, as a birthday present, took me to, uh, to uh, uh, a show there at the township. And I can't tell you anything about that show other than the main event was Jack and Jerry Bushville against Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson. <laughs> and, uh, man, those guys were larger than life to me, Sean. It was amazing. I was sitting here watching, and we were at ringside. Uh, I was sitting here watching those same men that I saw every Saturday on TV. Uh-huh. And not only that, but on weekends when I think most families were that way back then, uh, the mom would go grocery shopping on Saturday. <laughs> and right. I, I would sit at the magazine rack while my mom was doing the grocery shopping. Uh-huh. And I would go through those wrestling magazines, bending the pages. And there was, yes, sir, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And just, and I would, I got a two dollar allowance every week back then, and I would take my money and buy wrestling magazines. So mm-hmm. now I'm sitting ringside live watching these guys. Wow. So it had a huge impact on me. I, I grew up uh, just loving wrestling and mesmerized by it. 
Yeah, and before we, we get into that, I, I do got to mention the, the tremendous career you had at the uh, University of South Carolina, um, selected an All-American, uh, started by, uh, in, in, I think, 84, and uh, the, the Walter uh, Camp Football Foundation. I mean, you were just a consensus All-American. And, and uh, well, first of all, talk about what it's, what it's like, what that meant to you, because you almost went somewhere else to school, although I know that the Gamecocks were your, your, uh, you know, in your heart. But tell me about that college career and, and uh, how that shaped you uh, for, as you went forward in life, and, and what a, a great, great time. A wonderful experience, yeah. and uh, I did almost go somewhere else. I, I committed to go to Clemson, our in-state yeah. rival, yeah. even though I grew up in a Gamecock home, and we did not have a Clemson fan in our family, and they probably would have been you know, yeah, you might kicked have been out disowned. of the family. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But a, a funny story um, is that in the ninth grade, where my dad moved our family away from Columbia, South Carolina for five years in 1973. We moved to Calhoun, Georgia, and my dad worked in a ministry there for five years from 73 to 78. And uh, it's the ninth grade. I'm sitting in... Um, history class, and uh, the lady from the office comes over the intercom and said that I needed to report to the head coach's office, the head football coach's office. So I went down, mm-hmm. and Coach McMillan introduced me to a gentleman by the name of Clyde Wren, who at the time was the recruiting coordinator at Clemson. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you're in the ninth grade and a recruiting coordinator shows up from a major school yeah. and says, look, we think in a few years you can – be a part of our program and contribute, that blows you away and you're pretty That's a big impression, it. yeah. Absolutely. So it took a lot, even though my background and my love for Gamecocks was what it was. It took quite a bit for them to be able to overcome that. And um, I shook Danny Ford's hand one night after an official visit and verbally committed to go to Clemson, but mm-hmm. the head coach in South Carolina, a guy by the name of Jim Carlin, a few days later – talked me out of it and I never looked back I never regretted what I did by going to South Carolina yeah but uh, again a dream come true yeah uh, growing up watching those games listening to those games on the radio going to Williams by Stadium and sitting there as a fan as a kid as a teenager watching the Gamecocks play and now one day I'm part of that I'm out on the field and people are now watching me play yeah and uh it was just, uh, it was, wow, I'm here. I'm doing this. And uh, it was uh, just a dream come true. But, yeah. again, it's, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, and at the time when you were uh, selected as an All-American, I think that, that only had, there had only been one other uh, at the time, uh, All-American at, uh, at USC, right? Yeah, my senior year, 1984, yeah. was yeah. when I was, now, what had happened, we had had other guys that had been first-team All-Americans, but we'd only had one guy that had been a consensus. consensus yeah. Back yeah. then, there were five major All-American teams, and to be a consensus, you had to be first-team on three of the five. Yeah. And um, the only other guy that had ever done that was um, a guy that I'm fortunate to call a teammate, George Rogers, who yeah. won a Heisman Trophy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he won the Heisman Trophy my freshman year at Carolina, 1980. So four years later, I joined George as the only other consensus All-American. Now, since then, 
we've had two other guys yeah. that have been consensus All-Americans and uh, Melvin Ingram, Melvin Ingram, who plays with the Chargers, and Jadavion Clowney, who plays with the Texans. So I'm in great company there. Yeah, and I'll tell you what the cool one of the coolest things, and at least for somebody like me, and and folks uh, back then, uh, Bob Hope would have his Christmas special. And every year, mm-hmm. one of the things he would do is he would introduce the consensus All-Americans. And you were one of them. And that, I, I think that that's really awesome. That, But at the time, that must have been gigantic. It must have been huge for your family. It must have been so proud. Oh, it was. It, it was a big, big deal. Yeah. It was just, uh, again, it was one of those, those moments where you go, wow, yeah. I can't believe I'm here. This is, how did this happen to me? I, I uh. You know, I never dreamed. I knew or I felt like I was a good ball player and a good athlete, but I never dreamed that one day I would be running out and Bob Pope would be introducing me as one of the consensus All-Americans. And it was funny. We we had a guy on that 84 All-American team named Bill Fralick that played at Pittsburgh. He was an offensive lineman. And it was his his third year doing the Bob Pope show. And I watched him and – he just acted like it wasn't a big deal. And I thought, I don't get it. But maybe it wasn't. He'd been there three years. Yeah, he's, But this was a big deal for me, man. This was yeah. unreal in, in, in the love and the support of the family. And I'll tell you, that's what also makes moments like that very special, as you well know, is you're able to share it with your family. Because, listen, my mom and dad sacrificed for me to be able to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, running you back and forth to football practice as a kid and my mom having to wash dirty football pants and jerseys night after night so they'd be ready for the next day of practice and just sacrificing their time, their effort, their money so that I could do those things and participate in football. And now they're getting to enjoy the benefits as well and and to know how proud my dad was around his buddies and my mom was around her friends, their son was, you know, being being able to go through these things and, and enjoy these things and watch them on the Bob Hope show. So it's very special to be able to share it with those you love, you know? Yeah. And I imagine at the time when, uh, I mean, you carried on that tradition for the family and, uh, I'm sure it goes on through today, but, uh, uh, was the NFL, I mean, did you think, okay, that's, this is just what I'm going to do. I'm going to uh, move on to the NFL and, and have a, a lengthy career there. And, uh, what derailed it? Well, that was my plans. Yeah. Uh, naturally, you um, you know, any guy that plays college football, you feel like that if you can get a shot at the next level, that you can play there. And I certainly felt like I could. Uh, unfortunately, uh, those that make the decisions didn't agree with me. They mm-hmm. didn't see it the same way. But I, um, I signed with the Falcons. I went undrafted. Mm-hmm. And uh, I signed with the Falcons as a free agent. I... Um, I was a little surprised that, that I went undrafted. I really didn't, uh, after talking with my agent and actually talking with some other people in that business uh, of representing athletes, I felt like that probably maybe a third, fourth round pick somewhere in that area, but it just didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I signed as a free agent with the Falcons. And, uh, you know, I went into camp confident that, um, I saw, I'm sorry, let me change that. I signed with the Buccaneers. Yeah. In, in 85 out yeah. of South Carolina. Yeah. And uh, again, you're, you're in a situation where there are a lot of good football players in camp. Oh, yeah. Everybody that's in camp was probably the best football player 
on their team in college or one of the better players on their team in college. But you get to the NFL level, and we've got 20 offensive linemen in camp, and they're only going to keep eight. Yeah. So there's going to be 12 guys that are very good football players that aren't going to be there. They're not going to make it. They're not going to be a part of that roster. So <clears throat> the Bucks released me, and, um, and then I signed with the Falcons in 86. And the same thing, they released me. I, uh, I was at breakfast one morning, and, you know, you hear the stories about the Turk come into your room. Uh, I'm at breakfast, and uh, I'm sitting there eating my scrambled eggs and bacon and my grits, and somebody taps me on the shoulder. Mm. And I look up, and there stood the Turk, and he said, Coach needs to see you, and you need to bring your playbook. Yeah. Well, you know that. That's, yeah, that's... it. Your, your ride's over. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, can I at least finish my breakfast? He said, sure. And the guy stood right there over me, uh, making sure that I finished my breakfast mm-hmm. in a timely manner, and uh, then escorted me to the head coach's office. And um, so when I was released then by the Falcons, um, I completely changed my mindset. I put football behind me, and I had I had decided probably my – Sophomore or junior year at South Carolina, that whenever football ended for me, mm-hmm. uh, that I was going to pursue a career in pro wrestling. I yeah. just didn't know football would end that quick. Yeah. But uh, so when the Falcons released me, I just packed up and I came back to Columbia and uh, I got a job in the real world. I went to went to work in sales for a an industrial supply company and uh, started working towards saving some money up to. Get into a wrestling camp, you know, and that and that uh, is a great point there. You made uh, about, I mean, some people they'd spend their whole life, and you see this a lot of very successful athletes, and when uh, they go on beyond college, and let's say they get a year even or two years in the in the uh, you know professional ranks, uh, they're destroyed when it ends. Uh, but yeah. it, it, as we talked about before, uh, you had been raised to. You know, get back up. Things happen. You you mentioned how you don't win all the time. So was it uh, was there a period where you said, "Oh man, what am I going to do?" Or you know, were you were down about it, or you just said, "Okay, this is what's next," and now I got to start um, working my way towards that goal. Well, obviously, I was extremely disappointed. Yeah. Um, and and you know, you're let down. You're hurt. Huh. Uh, you've been. I've been playing this game since the sixth grade, like we mentioned earlier, and now and it. Every year I played, 6th, 7th, 8th grade, all the way through. I was the best football player on every team Mm -hmm. that I ever played on, even in college. You know, we talk about all the great awards I got in 1984, consensus All-American and first-team All-American on this team, that team. But the most, the one that meant the most to me and always will was the fact that in 1984, my teammates voted me their captain and my coaches voted me the most valuable player on that team. Yeah. That meant more to me than any yeah. national award I could win. So you're used to being the top guy mm-hmm. at every level. And now I'm having a head coach look me in the eye and tell me, hey, you're just not good enough to make our team. Yeah. Wow. And it hurts. That's yeah. a slap upside the face and a kick in the gut. So it for probably a couple of days, uh, it was tough to deal with and get over it. But I realized you got to get over it. It's over. It's done. And now let's uh, let's change our mindset. Let's uh, let's start t- working toward the next goal. I'm a young guy, man. I got a lot in front of me, 
And then you start, or at least I did, started getting that excitement about the next step. And for me, that was pro wrestling. Yeah. And so what was the plan? Did you have a school in mind? Did someone approach you? I mean, how did, how did that all um, take place after that and you getting trained? Well, I knew that there was a school in Columbia, mm-hmm. uh, my hometown, and uh, it was owned and operated by Lillian Ellison, one of the most iconic lady wrestlers ever, the fabulous Moolah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Moolah, just like myself, was a, a native of Columbia, South Carolina. And uh, so I had, um, after I was released by the Falcons, I, I called Moolah and just over the phone introduced myself and told her who I was and, and my background and uh, that football had just ended for me. I wanted to come out and talk with her about her camp and, and uh, taking the necessary steps to uh, get my career started in professional wrestling or at least the attempt to have a career. Mm-hmm. So uh, we set up a time and date to get together and I went out and I sat down with Mula and it was, um, <laughs> it was interesting. I, I, uh, I loved Mula and uh, getting to know Mula in person, you know, on TV, I saw that character, that tough, hard nosed woman. Hey. Uh, but when you were around Mula, uh, I would all, I would always sort of, compare her to um, a Waffle House waitress. You know, you walk into a Waffle <laughs> yeah, yeah. House, especially especially here in the South, yeah. and you're honey, yeah, yeah. sweetheart, sugar pie. Yeah. How can I help you today, sugar pie? What would you like to drink, sweetheart? Yeah. Do you need a refill on that coffee, honey? And uh, that's how Moolah talks yeah. to me. Hey, baby. Hey, sweetie. How can yeah. I help you? Yeah. Well, darling, it's going to cost $2,000 to go through my school, sweetheart. Mm. And uh, here's what we hope to accomplish during that time, sugar pie. And uh, so uh, she was a, a very endearing figure to me. Yeah. Uh, the only issue that I saw potentially that could be a hindrance to me was that her school was for girls and it was geared toward girls. And there had been a number of ladies that had come out of her camp or her school and had gone on and had very good careers, yeah. very successful careers, but there had never been a guy. Yeah. I didn't know she, yeah, she trained school. men. So, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so what she did, there were some guys that, that, that hung out at her place that she would uh, she'd send up to Vince for TV tapings. And, you know, back when <clears throat> on TV you had enhancement guys or some people referred to them as job guys that would go out and in a short period of time put over uh, the talent, the superstars, you know, with uh, a two-minute match, a three-minute match. And... Uh, the guys that she had there at her school were guys that had done TV for Vince in that capacity. And I'll be honest with you, Sean, they didn't know much more than I did. And, uh, they weren't, you know, they weren't that good at what they did, but they were able to teach me the basics. A headlock, an arm bar, an arm drag, a backdrop. Uh, I learned no psychology there. Uh, they didn't have a clue what psychology was, but, I did learn the basics, the physical basics, yeah. and uh, and was able to go from there. But uh, it was uh, it was quite an experience, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I can't imagine that must have been some Kasbula. What a what a what an interesting woman over the years, and uh, what she did in professional wrestling. And I I didn't know that that men ever went through that camp. So that's that's pretty interesting. 
so when did you actually start working and it was it one of those uh situations where you started you learned on the job so how did that all come about yeah i did learn on the job and yeah. and, and i learned from watching from listening um and i'll tell you what was really really a sort of a turning point or one of many turning points in my career and one of the things that really helped me and i'm so thankful that it happened is that uh, she ran a show here in columbia uh it was literally a building where they it was a bingo hall Mm -hmm. that had closed up and they no longer had bingo there and uh so she ran a couple of shows there and on the very first one she ran uh she had wahoo booked wahoo mcdaniel Mm -hmm. and wahoo was working for Vern gagne at the time and um had an apartment up in Minneapolis, but he still had his permanent home in Charlotte. And he was home for a few weeks there in Charlotte and Moolah booked him on this particular show. And, uh, I met Wahoo that night and uh, we just hit it off. Hmm. And uh, I think it was probably that background that we had in football. football that, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That common, that same football. Yeah. And, uh, he really just took a liking to me. And, um, he told me that when he got back to Minneapolis, he was going to talk to Vern and Greg and uh, bring my name up to him. And he did. And uh, I also, he was Wahoo when he was home in Charlotte, um, because there were times back then where Vern, you know, the AWA at that time was just, dude, they were struggling to stay alive. Yeah. They were hurting. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't the mighty company that it, had once been mm-hmm. so they would have long periods of time three four five six weeks they would shut down and not do anything so while he would come back to charlotte and uh, he'd work a lot of the independent shows in north carolina and south carolina and so he made sure that wherever he got booked and worked that i got booked and worked and uh, so i spent countless hours on the road with him mm-hmm. working these independent shows and just picking his brain and just yeah. trying to absorb as much as I could from Wahoo. Yeah. And uh, so I probably learned way more from Wahoo than I ever did at Moolah School. Yeah, well, that was your university with him. Uh, it was. The traveling right. with the cars, as they always say. Um, yep. So I don't know. I think, what are we talking about, 88 at this point? What, where are we in your – That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, with the uh, AWA uh, – the the WWF is really starting to roar here. I mean, it has roared, and uh, yeah. we see these these territories kind of going down one by one. Um, but it, it was a good opportunity for you. I mean, there were a lot of places to work. And then, how did you end up uh, with with the uh, global wrestling? Is that where it really kind of took off for you, or when when did you think that uh, you know you really started to feel like a professional wrestler? Well, I was fortunate. And that while Vince, or I'm sorry, Vern, mm-hmm. while the AWA was just struggling yeah. uh, to stay afloat and to try to be relevant in the wrestling world, they at least were on ESPN. They yeah. had that TV contract with yeah. the ESPN. And so they were on five days a week, Monday through Friday from four to five o'clock Eastern time. And uh, I was doing a character called the Trooper. <laughs> and um, so I was at least exposed to a national TV audience. And um, that's basically all Vern was doing at the time were the TV tapings. Now, every now and then would run a spot show or two here and there. And uh, 
but for the most part, it was just TVs. So I had a lot of time in between the TV tapings to, again, work these independent shows with Wahoo. But when the AWA finally went belly up, uh, there was this talk in the rumblings about this new company. And uh, they were going to be called the Global Wrestling Federation. Mm -hmm. And um, there was just, I don't know if the guy existed or if he was just a mythical figure, but there was this Nigerian businessman that had $30 million that he was going to dump into this new company, the Global Wrestling Federation. Mm -hmm. And they were going to try to go head to head with Vince and Turner and uh, be a viable third option for the wrestling fans. And um, it just kept, you kept hearing all these things that were supposed to happen and they just weren't materializing. It just wasn't happening. And it turned out that this guy with $30 million from Nigeria didn't have the $30 million. And whether it was hoax, a hoax, or he just lied, I don't know. But but eventually, this thing started coming together once they got another financial backer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, Joe Petticino was the one that originally reached out to me about Global, uh, along with Bill Eady. Um, and um, we finally set a date, or they did, for their very first TV taping uh, in Dallas, Texas, at the Sportatorium. And um, so, uh, the FedEx guy shows up at my house one day with a with a ticket and uh, I'm flying to Dallas and I had been told to bring my trooper gear. That's, yeah. I mean, t- I didn't know anything and tickets, different. And your tickets with you too, right? To- <laughs> and my tickets and my plastic badges. And <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had to, uh, yeah. I would always write my opponent yeah. a yeah, ticket <laughs> and uh, leave it on their forehead. After that cheesy finish called the pinch, <laughs> the big pinch. That's yeah. where I would, uh, I would put pressure on the traps of my opponents. I would come from behind them and just squeeze the life out of their traps until they passed out. I didn't realize you could pass out from blood loss to your traps, but uh, <laughs> well, they did, and I would well, leave a ticket on them. You, had, you, you applied <laughs> it in a certain way that, that made it That's happen. That's right. Yeah. I knew how to do it, and uh, while others didn't. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, I fly out to Dallas, and I'm fully expecting – that I'm going to be working as a trooper and um, all the talent. We all stayed at the same uh, motel. It was uh, the roadway in. We were about 10 minutes from the sportatorium. Yeah. And um, I got a call from, I think it was Bonnie Blackstone, Joe's wife. And uh, she said, look, she said, we need you to walk over to our room. We want to talk with you. We got Bill Eady in here and it's me and Joe. And we have an idea that we want to run by you. So, I walked over to Bonnie and Joe's room and I walk in and there's Bill and they start laying out this idea to me uh, about a patriotic character called the Patriot. Hmm. And um, the timing was good. We, um, yeah. you know, it was the early 90s and we had been involved in, uh, I guess, Operation Desert Storm to liberate um, Kuwait mm-hmm. where Iraq had gone in and occupied Kuwait. And uh, so patriotism was at a very high level. And they start laying out the idea, and Bonnie pulls out this paper grocery bag. And uh, she unfolds it, and she reaches in, and she pulls out a red, white, and blue mask, and red, white, and blue tights, and red, white, and blue trunks. And uh, I said, wow, I like it. Gotcha right away. Sounds good to me. And you you were excited about working in the mask, too? Well, you know, when I started working for Moolah, 
Yeah. Uh, the first character I did uh, was Under the Mask, the first gimmick. The guy that uh, broke into the business with me, a buddy of mine that uh, went to the Citadel, a military school in Charleston, um, she put us under hoods and called us uh, the Mask Grapplers. You know, how creative the Mask Grapplers, right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> just put us under these red hoods. Yeah. So I'd worked under a hood for a little while, and um, and I'd even worked under a hood uh, in Mid-South for um, Lawler and Jarrett. Hmm. Um, they had put Scott Steiner and I together as a tag team called The Wrestling Machines, and uh, it was short-lived, but Scott and I wore white masks with white tights, and uh, for a few months we ran around as The Wrestling Machines. So I'd worked under a hood before, so that didn't in any way intimidate me or give me any reason for concern. The one thing that bothered me and concerned me greatly, and I made my feelings known, is she opened up a second brown paper bag, and she pulled out this smokestack hat, like one of those Abe Lincoln hats. Yeah. And it was red, white, and blue. <laughs> you know, it looked like one of those Dr. Seuss yeah, hat and oh, hat. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was hideous, and uh, I said, "Listen, I'm all in, but I promise you one thing: I'm not wearing I'm that wearing the hat." <laughs> yeah, no way, I'm out. And uh, oh, okay, no problem. But um, so, literally, just a few hours before the very first show for Global, before the very first TV taping ever, mm. they hit me with this idea of this character, and uh, I liked it, and. Uh, I felt honored that they thought that I was the guy that could pull it off. And uh, that night at the Sportatorium, uh, when the, um, the wrestling fans saw it for the first time, Sean, we had an unbelievable reaction. Yeah. And uh, I knew then that we were on to something pretty good. And I'll tell you another reason, too, that I felt it was the right thing for me. I, I think with a lot of guys, you, um, your character in some way is an extension of you. And you've got to believe in that character. Mm -hmm. You've got yeah. to feel comfortable with that character. And uh, I'm not the only patriotic guy that's ever lived. Uh, but I, it was an easy thing for me to do. Yeah. Very easy. It yeah. felt very familiar yeah. and very comfortable. Well, that's like Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, he's a he's a former drill sergeant, and he he has lived that character even before he got there. So. Yeah, you're right, and that's, that's uh, probably exactly why it right. didn't work with Lex Luger. They they tried that, and it just wasn't right for him. It was a great. I mean, you you pitch that gimmick, you're like, wow, that's awesome, but it just didn't work. But you certainly lived it, and and uh, you know, as the uh, global may not be you know the, the the greatest memories for you, but you but you got a gimmick. You got it. You became the patriot that uh, I, that 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 you carried on through your career, and and you got to leave with it, which is really awesome. Um, a couple of uh, opportunities with the WWF at the time. Um, what, 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 how did those come about, and were they just basically tryouts and you went off to do other things right beyond that? Well, it was, uh, I guess it was a combination of a tryout and, uh, and then one of the other opportunities presented itself was um, Rick Martell had got hurt and was injured and was going to, they had to pull him off the road for a while. Yeah. So um, I'd already been up for a tryout and worked a dark match for, for Vince and had cut some promos and uh, where they could see that as well. And um, then I get a call from, um, I guess it was Pat, um, 
Patterson. Uh-huh. I can't remember who it was, but anyway, I got a call and said, "Look, Mark Hill's hurt. Yeah. You know, Vince likes what he's seen from you, and uh, he wants you to come up and and go out on the road for a few weeks until Rick's back." And he said, "Who knows? It could turn into something long term." But uh-huh. uh, are you up for it? And I said, "Absolutely." And uh, so I uh, I did, but and there was a it was an opportunity then to to go to work for Vince, but I had just started working for Baba in all Japan. Yeah. And, um, you know, as well as I do that, that at one time, and I don't know if it's still that way within the business, but at one time, uh, if Anoki or Baba, uh, wanted you to work, that was quite an honor Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, quite a feather in your cap that, that either one of those two men, um, thought that you were, good enough to, to fit into their company and be a part of their company. And uh, so I had worked for Baba on one tour when I was the trooper, and it just didn't go very well. Mm. I just wasn't prepared for for that type of work, that style of work, the type of matches they had. And uh, I thought I'll never get another opportunity, but I did. And, um, you know, like anything else in life, any occupation, the more you do it, the better you get. The more experience, the better you get. The more yeah. comfortable you become. Yeah. And uh, I had just had more ring time under my belt, and uh, it just got more experienced and felt more comfortable and, and confident in what I was doing. And I think it showed, and my ring work got better, and character development had gotten better. And uh, so things were smoking pretty good with the Patriot. And uh, Baba. Uh, presents to me an opportunity to go back and do one tour. And uh, three nights into that tour, it was a May-June tour, lasted three weeks, but three nights into it, uh, Baba pulled me aside and said, look, you know, I want you full-time. And uh, so I knew that I wasn't going to pass up that opportunity, and I just told Vince, uh, you know, when it was presented to me, the opportunity, to work for him that I just felt like at that particular time, you know, I'd obligated myself to Mr. Baba. And while Baba never signed the contract, everything was done on a handshake. Mm-hmm. I had shook his hand and I'd given him my word, you know, that I was a part of that company and a permanent part of that company. So I just didn't feel right at the time that, uh, you know, the WWF was the place I needed to be. I, I wanted to work for Baba in all Japan. Yeah, and uh, and educate us a little bit about uh, wrestling in Japan. It is a it's a very uh, different place to be uh, as far as the, how the crowds are, and then also how they work. And uh, you know, because a lot of times in these matches here, you know, you call them in there, you, and you know the finish. It's much different over there, and then um, and they work a little a little tight, I think, as you say. So uh, educate us a little bit about what the, what the experience is like to to work over there. Totally, completely different. It's still yeah. pro wrestling, but it's a different approach. It's a different mindset. It's a different way of doing business, and it worked very well for Baba. Mm. In the 80s and 90s, there wasn't a hotter company on the planet mm. than all Japan. And uh, uh, sellouts everywhere we went, just mm. crazy crowds, uh, TV ratings through the roof, and an unbelievable roster of talent. But the way Baba did things is there was no heel or babyface. Uh, every night you went to the ring and there was a one, two, three. Somebody got their hand raised. There were clean finishes. There were no screw jobs. There were no outside interferences. Mm. 
There were no double count outs or double DQs, any of that. There was a winner and a loser. Clean finishes. The matches were longer. Um, man, I've had finishes that lasted 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, it was just done differently. Our TV show uh, came on every Sunday night for an hour and uh, broadcast all over Japan. But it was all matches. There were no promos. There were no interviews. There was none of that. Hmm. There were no valets. There were no managers. It was just two wrestlers in a ring with a referee or four wrestlers in a ring with a referee or six wrestlers in a ring with a referee. Hmm. Six mans were a big deal for all Japan at the yeah. time. And uh, it was strictly about what went on in that ring. Hmm. So therefore, you don't have the uh, the so-called entertainment side of it with managers and promos and things like that. It's all about what goes on in that ring. So the believability of what happens in that ring becomes very important. Yeah. Therefore, you it, it, it tends to be a more stiff style, a little bit more snug. And uh, I enjoyed it. I liked that. I, uh, well, being a know, football I player. Come from a, yeah, 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 I've been a football player, an offensive lineman, and <laughs> every snap there's contact. So <laughs> it didn't bother me to get jacked upside the head with a Masawa forearm every now and then or a Kawada spin kick. And um, But it was just a different way of doing business, and it worked, and it worked wonderfully for Mr. Baba. And I'll tell you, Sean, I, people always ask me about the highlight of my career. You know, you and Buff back, well, we're in WCW, and you guys were tag team champs twice, or, you know, the, mm-hmm. Nor- the North American heavyweight champion global, or wrestling Bret Hart for the belt in the WWF. What was the highlight of your career? And I think most people probably rightfully so think that it would be the WWF, but the highlight of my career was working in Japan hmm. and working for Baba and working in all Japan. Let me just give you sort of an idea of the kind of talent I'm working with on the American bus night after night. I'm riding with Terry Gordy, Steve Williams, Stan Hansen, Doug Furness, Danny Crawford, the Fantastics, Jeez. my tag team partner, uh, Jackie Fulton, mm-hmm. Abdul the Butcher, Andre the Giant, Dory Funk. Um, on the Ameri- on the Japanese bus, you've got Baba, Jumbo Saruta, you've got Kabashi, you've got Mazawa, you've got Kawada, you've got Tawei, a young guy named Juan Akiyama, all of these guys who just became legends in the business. And, uh, just some of the greatest workers I've ever been around in an unbelievable roster of talent. And every night you saw four and five star matches with just long drawn out finishes. It just, I mean, would just drive the fans crazy. One, two, kick out, one, two, kick out, one, two, kick out, just false finish after false finish, big move after big move and just unbelievable, unbelievable reaction from the fan base. So, Business was great. I love working there. I worked with great people. I worked for an unbelievable promoter, and uh, it was truly, truly the highlight of my career. And those matches, though, were uh, like you said, they were long, and you had to memorize them uh, because you got a language barrier for one. But that's just the way they did things. And how did you do that when they're, you know, that long? Because it's move by move, and you have to have everything right in place. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and especially if it was TV. Mm. And it wasn't unusual at TV, um, you know, to go out and work 30, 35, 40 minutes in a match. 
and you have to memorize everything wow. from lock up, hmm. you know, lock up headlock, back mm-hmm. into the ropes, clean break, lock up, grab an arm bar, arm drag, you know, hip toss, you know, I mean, everything move by move. It's just memorized. And, uh, we used to laugh. It was funny. You could look around the locker room and, um, it probably looked like a scene from one flew over the cuckoo's nest because you got a mask guy over here and he's, he's literally physically mimicking what he's got to do in the ring. So I'm, I'm throwing a clothesline, duck a clothesline. I'm, I'm taking my arms and, and my body and I'm literally, you know, just going through the match physically and trying to remember it. Then you got another guy over here that's with the guy he's going to work with and they're walking through a match step by step, move by move. Mm-hmm. And it's totally look pretty funny when you look around. And you yeah. see everybody off, dancing, off in the yeah. corner of the room, you know, trying to go through this match and memorize it and make sure that you've got it down. And as you said, you've also got a language barrier. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that can present problems. I, uh, I was working with uh, one of the Japanese guys one night, and I just called the spot in the ring. I said, reverse drop kick. I'm shooting him off the ropes. And I want him to reverse me into the ropes. And when I come off, drop kick me. Well, he got the reverse part, but he forearmed me right across the nose. Oh, jeez. And it knocked me out. <laughs> and, you know, if you've ever been knocked out in the ring, it took me a few seconds to sort of come to. And as I'm coming to, I was w- running in one direction, but now I'm facing the other direction. I'm laying on my stomach, and you start thinking these crazy things. I could hear people yelling in the background, and I look down, and I realize I don't have a shirt on, which that's how I went to work every night. And I'm thinking, why am I in front of these people? And where's my shirt? What, what happened to my clothes? What the hell? And, and I'm bleeding. Yeah, I mean, what in the world's going on here? And I still don't know where I'm at. I try to stand up, and my legs give out on me. I've got the rubber legs, and I can't, I look like, Tommy Hearns, when um, when Marvin Hagler was pounding him in those ferocious three rounds, mm. Hearns was long and lanky, and those legs just weren't supporting. Yeah, rubber. Yeah. And I probably looked the same way, like a newborn giraffe. I couldn't stand up. Yeah. But finally, things started coming to, and, and I started putting the pieces of the puzzle back together. But that language barrier could present major problems at times. But, you know, it was still, it was still a wonderful experience, and you know, you could literally have a match, a 45-minute match, and 15 minutes of it finish, and just countless false finishes. One, two, mm. barely kick out. One, two, saves made. And it just, well, the fans would just go crazy. Yeah. It was um, it was wonderful. Yeah. Well, I want to uh, talk to you about, uh, you know, life on the road. Now, uh, I know I know it well from when I worked with the WWF, uh, you know, uh, and I didn't have to go to all the. I, I'd go to the usually usually to the TV tapings, but I knew what life was on the road for these guys, and uh, it, it was it was unbelievable back then. You know, house shows were everything. They had house shows, you know, six or seven uh, days a week. They were doing double shots, and I know that 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 uh, that schedule you had in Japan was brutal as well. And uh, you have to have lived it to understand it. But folks, you know, you're uh, every day you're getting up. You've got to. Uh, you know, find a gym, you've got to eat, you've got to, first you've got to wake up, and you've probably been on the road anyway, and, and uh, so there's very few along the way, and, the, and there are exceptions who people who didn't use enhancement to help them, 
uh, as far as uh, and pills became a big part of it. So what at what point uh, for you did did you start becoming dependent on them? Well, the usage started very in a very very innocent manner. I um I had um, got thrown out of the ring, or I think I did a move where I literally flipped myself out of the ring yeah. and uh, landed on the floor and um, hit that concrete floor, and my elbow just immediately blew up, hmm. and um, it looked like a uh, you know hanging fruit. My okay. elbow did; it was just fluid built up on it, and. Uh, I was having the fluid removed um, a couple of times a week. I'd go to a doctor. And finally, the doctor just gave me the syringes. He said, look, man, you're going to have to remove this fluid every night yourself or get somebody to help you. Ugh. I had that much fluid build up night after night after night. Just sitting on an airplane and rubbing my elbow on an armrest after a two-hour flight, that thing would swell up again. And uh, it was extremely painful. Mm-hmm. I mean, just unbearable and um i'm from the south man and where if something hurts the way you fix it is you get a goodie powder and you wash down a goodie powder with a coca-cola or a pepsi cola you familiar with goodie powders no okay it is basically aspirin in a powder form or it's acetaminophen okay in a powder form i hadn't heard it described as that goodie powder yeah Yeah. and uh richard petty was the spokesman for goodie powders (laughs) and um in the South, they were a big deal. But you got a headache, you got an arm ache, you got a backache. Man, you just get you a couple of goodie powders. You could buy them. They come two powders in a container or six powders in a container. And they're already in powder form, so you wash them down with a drink. 15, 20 minutes later, the pain starts going away. Hmm. So I'm on the road. I'm in the WWF. This is the early 90s. This when I was filling in for Martell. Mm-hmm. And I'm traveling with John Nord and Kurt Henning. And uh, Henning makes uh, a comment. I'll never forget it. It's etched into my memory. As long as I've got a memory, I'll remember this. I'm in the back seat of a rental car. Mm-hmm. John Nord's driving, Kurt Henning sitting in the passenger seat. And he starts asking me about my elbow. Kurt did. He said, man, that thing looks nasty, dude. Yeah. He goes, it's got to be painful. I said, it's killing me. He says, well, what do you take for the pain? I said, I take goodie powders. And he said, goodie powders? And he laughed at me. And he said, goodie powders? He goes, what's a goodie powder? And I explained to him, just like I did to you, what a goodie powder was. He said, dude, he said, you don't take Percocet or Vicodin or anything like that? And I said, no. He said, "Uh," and I was under the impression that pain medication would make you stupid and goofy and unbalanced yeah, not and be able to work. unsure of yourself yeah. and yeah, not be able to work. Yeah. And I said, how do you work on a, on pain pills? And Kurt's response was, response was, how do you work without them? <laughs> I thought, wow. Wow. Mm. Yeah. That's Maybe what's you know something I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So he gave me, he went into his stash and he did what restaurant. He gave up some of his medicine, some of his pills. He handed me, I think, six uh, Percocet. And he said, take these tomorrow night before your match. About 30 minutes. Take one or two. Boy. And I did the next night. And um, 
I didn't feel that unbalanced feeling. I didn't feel that drunk feeling. I thought I would feel. I was buzzed. But I know one thing, I didn't feel pain. Mm. And I was able to go out and work, Sean, and do what I was paid to do. And uh, it didn't make the injury go away. It didn't heal the injury, but it took the pain away. And I could go out and work. Well, and, and you, I told were, him that. you were a, a, a big uh, specimen out there. You, I mean, and the things you did, you were, you know, drop kicks off the top rope, and, and you did this stuff night after night. Uh, you weren't exactly taking good care of the machine. No, I wasn't. I mean, what other injuries were you, you know, were you were dealing with as you uh, went along? Yeah, I was, um, I was probably doing things in hindsight that I shouldn't have been doing. Um, you know, or and I'm least sure other guys must have told you, though. Didn't they say, hey, dude, you know, you got to, you know, other big people. But did you just think, ah, well, I'm different from them. I can do this. I did. And yeah. and you're exactly right. And in, in another very, very vivid, strong memory I got in my mind is on a bus somewhere in Japan. Um, we had permanent seats on the bus. And I sat behind Hanson, Stan Hanson. And uh, we just had hours and hours of conversations at night rolling through the interstates of, of Japan going to the next town. And he told me one night, he said, buddy, he said, I'm going to tell you. He said, what you do looks good. He said, it's impressive for a big guy to get on that top turnbuckle and do that Patriot missile and mm-hmm. fly halfway across the ring and hit him with that big shoulder tackle. And that drop kick looks good. He goes, but you're going to cause yourself some serious problems. He said, you're, let the little guys do that. That's for the little guys. He said, you're going to ruin, exact words, you're going to ruin your knees and your elbows. Mm-hmm. And I did. And uh, so he, he proved to be very prophetic in, in telling me that. And uh, so I did. I was doing things that I shouldn't have been doing and I should have cut back on. And I did get advice from other guys not to do those things. And like Stan told me, he said, look at my fitness or clothesline. I don't leave my feet, mm. you know, he yeah. said, that's what you need to learn to do. And I had the exact same mindset that you just said. I thought, yeah, right. Yeah. It's just coming from an old guy, mm. you know, and I even had the thought in my head. This is how stupid and arrogant I was, I guess. Mm. Yeah. That's just coming from a guy that's not athletic enough to do those things. <laughs> and he knows they look good. So therefore he wants me to stop doing them because it's showing him up. That's how stupid I was in my, how crazy my thinking was. But anyway, uh, I continued to do them in those two pain pills that Kurt gave me, or those six, and I took two before a match one night. Brother, it was magic. It worked. I could go out and work with no pain. And it was years down the road, but that opened the floodgates. And and when did it uh, really start to become a problem? When you knew it? Oh, man, it was... uh, just a few years later. Oh, really? Um, I'm in WCW and, you know, working with Bagwell. We're working in Stars and Stripes. And I'm at the point now where the most important thing to me is I'm packing up to go out on the road for a week, 10 days, two weeks, whatever it is. The most important thing to me, the thing that will absolutely bring panic down on me is if I don't have my pills. Mm. I can live without my gimmick, with my boots, I whatever, but I've got to have that medicine bag with those pills in it. And I can't work without them 
I can't survive without them. It's it's gone from just taking a couple before a match to taking them when I get up. I can't function without them. Uh, opiates are a drug mm-hmm. that they're very your body becomes physically dependent on it. Yeah. And if your body doesn't get that drug, then your body starts doing bad things and you start getting very sick, violently sick, throwing up, muscle cramps, just no energy and very, very, very bad dope sickness. So it's gone from just trying to work with a bum elbow to now trying to, I mean, I've got to have them every day. Yeah. And there's another element to this uh, that I used to think about it. I, I knew what was going on, and uh, but there would be these guys that are hang that hang around, and they were the guys that were getting the guys the juice, and they were getting them pain pillars, and it was no different than a pusher. And and I always wondered though, like how how did they how did they get so many pills then? And I know it's a lot different today, but were there always a you know a cup somebody in some city that could get you, or did you have your regular guys that when you went a place? How did that happen? How did that work? Well, for me. <clears throat> It worked through meeting a doctor. Mm. I um, I was working for WCW, and um, we were working a show in Indianapolis. I think we were getting ready to work a show there. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, no, it, here's how it happened. I heard one of the boys talking about a doctor in Indianapolis that would write the boys anything. Mm-hmm. He was a big wrestling mark, and he had his private practice as an MD there in Minneapolis. And the boys had just worked there. That's what it was. WCW had just worked there a couple of weeks before me signing on with them. Mm-hmm. So I had missed the show in Indianapolis, but I overheard one of the boys talking about Dr. Feelgood. And I'll leave his name out because a lot of the boys knew him. He was very, um, it was a very popular name back in the eighties and nineties in the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. And so I got on the phone and I just made something up, and I called him. I said, hey, Doc, this is Del Wilkes, you know, the Patriot. And I said, uh, man, I hate I didn't get a chance to speak to you last week when we were in town. I wasn't there. I wasn't on that show, so I was lying to him. Mm-hmm. I said, but, man, I said, I tell you, I really needed to talk to you. I got a knee that's just killing me. And uh, my doctor here at home just doesn't want to write me uh, any kind of pain medicine, medicine for it. I said, uh, would you, could you help me out and call me something in? Hmm. Absolutely, Dell. What's the pharmacy you want to use and what's the phone number? Boy. And that started a relationship yeah. that was built solely around drugs and about his love for wrestling. And he became a part of my monthly budget. Yeah. I would send Dr. Phil Good, I think I was sending him 1200 bucks a month. So mortgage payment, car payment, insurance payment, Dr. Phil Good. Wow. But did it continue uh, to grow? I mean, was it, you know, 1,200 and then it was, yeah. Well, no, the amount I sent him didn't grow, but I also did other things for him. You know, in our line of work, you know, you can build up an awful lot of frequent flyer miles. And um, so I flew him and his wife all over the country. Uh, I would put them up, room and board, provide a rental car, uh, gifts from Japan, So it was more than just money. It was things like that. And uh, what he would do every Monday, he would send a FedEx package out to me and he would, there would be six different handwritten prescriptions for Percocet. And there would be a hundred Percocet 
on every handwritten prescription. So, there, so there's 600 Percocet. He would handwrite a prescription for 300 Somas for 150 Valium, Jeez. 150 Halcyon. <laughs> and I would go through all that. And, uh, and how, the very next how, how week on time? How, 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 how long did it take you to go through that many? I was I was doing 100 to 120 a 10 milligram Percocets every day. Oh my God! 100, 100 to 120 a day. Sean is the Lord is mm. my witness. I would chew 15 to 20 Percocet up at a time. Chew them up and get them into that goody powder powder form and mm. swallow them. And that would last about four hours, and then I'd wow. chew up another 15 to 20. So I was doing. 100 to 120 pain pills a day. Jeez, and you're still um, working. <laughs> yep, still working. And uh, at night, uh, there's a misconception about pain pills that they make you sleepy and drowsy. Yeah. But yet, if if you've taken them for any length of time, they do the exact opposite. It's mm-hmm. like go-go juice, dude. Yeah. I mean, you are at mock speed. And uh, you can work 45 minutes and not even draw a deep breath. Uh, I'd get home from being on the road for a month and uh, working in Japan. Uh, within a couple of days, I'm in my yard working, and I'd take 20 Percocet, and well, I could get my yard done, wash my cars. I mean, <laughs> it was energy, yeah, you know. No. It was uh, wow. it was rocket fuel. Yeah. So at night, you've got to go to sleep, but you're jacked up because yeah. you've taken yeah. 120 Percocet that day. So what do you do? You, you take 30 or 40 somewhere. You take a couple of Xanax, you take a handful of Halcyon. Yeah. It was a vicious cycle. Yeah. An dude. eighth it of that would vicious. kill somebody if they just started taking them. I mean, the, 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 uh, oh, no doubt. What you had built up. And at the same time, it also, because you're not feeling the pain, you're, you're doing more and more damage to your body because you're not feeling the consequences. And, and so, That's exactly what's right. happening with your body at this point? It's, it's getting worse and worse. I, um, the two things that ended my career it w- was a uh, a torn tricep mm-hmm. on my right arm, and I blew my right knee out. I've since I think I've had eight surgeries on that right knee, with three of them being replacements. I've had my right knee replaced three times, so it's just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And uh, not only does it affect what I'm doing in the ring, but it affects what I can do in the gym. You can't do an awful lot when you've got a torn tricep. Uh, your bench press, your incline press. So your body starts reflecting the fact that you're not able to work out. So I'm getting smaller, losing mass. Uh, You know, when you work without a shirt, that look is very important. And um, so it's affecting all that. And uh, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead here, but I want to say this. When I was working for Vince in, in the late 90s, and my addiction is just, it's just crazy, Sean. It's just what a burden to, yeah. to try to work every day and travel, but also to know that you've got to feed this addiction. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes like overwhelming. And I finally met with my doctor here in Columbia. And he said, dude, you, you got to stop. You can't go on. Yeah. Your body is shot. And unless you take time off to heal, you're only going to get worse. And I'll never forget he also relayed that thought to, to J.R. and Vince. And we were getting ready to go overseas and do a tour in the Middle East and Israel and, and, and that region of the world. Yeah. And 
I got a call from Vince and JR, and they're on the phone together. It's sort of a conference call type thing, and my doctor as well. And they said, Dale, we've all come to the conclusion that you got to get healed up. Mm -hmm. Your body's shot. It's a wreck. And we think it's in your best interest to take the time to do that. And it was almost like I wanted to cry. I thought, finally, Uh, finally. Somebody's telling me no. But, yeah, but but the addiction only got worse after that. Mm -hmm. It didn't do what I hoped it would do. Yeah, you didn't go home and heal, right? No, Because you had no other distraction. I mean, I, I don't know what, what happened but uh no it, at, well, at that, what state of mind are you in at that point your body is a mess uh and and i don't know what you're doing at that point as far as what you have to put in your body just to get through every day well it, you know now i'm done and, and, and vince left it with me this way he said dale he said please take care of yourself get these injuries taken care of mm. and uh, we're going to pay you the remainder of of, you know, X amount of dollars and in, in for the contract. But please take the time to get healed up. Get mm-hmm. these surgeries. Get your body back. And he said, when you're ready, come back and work. And he said, if you want to work a limited schedule, I'll work with you. But we can't do any of that unless you get your body healed up and get these things taken care of. So now I don't have wrestling. I'm, I'm supposed to be getting my body healed up and fixed and surgeries. And I just continued to get deeper and deeper in my addiction. And the doctor, Dr. Phil Good, he called me one day and he said, Dale, he said, I'm in some major, major trouble. Hmm. He said, the Indiana state police showed up at my office today. And he said, they got a call from a pharmacist in Columbia, South Carolina at a Walmart. And it was one of the many pharmacists, that I would use. I would use every pharmacy in town. Um, And he said, I'm in some deep trouble. And so they took his license away and his ability to practice. And um, so now I didn't have a doctor that would just call me in stupid amounts of pills. So I went to a doctor, uh, just picked the guy out of the phone book, went to him and he wrote me a prescription for 40 Percocet. And I made a copy of that prescription and it has all his information on his DEA number, which for a doctor is like his social security number. Yeah. That's what identifies that doctor uh-huh. and his name and all his pertinent information. And I became the doctor. I'll never forget the first time I called in a prescription. I thought I was going to throw up. I was so nervous. Mm. I really did. I thought I was going to puke and I just ran through it time and time again, you know, Talking it out loud, hey, this is Dr. Blah, 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 blah. I got a prescription for a patient. Patient's name is. Mm-hmm. And I just practiced it over and over and over until I finally got what I felt like comfortable enough to call it in and call and, and pull this thing off. Now, I would never use my name. I would create a fictitious patient, come up with a fictitious name, a date of birth. But I would call in and call these prescriptions in. And the first time I did it, it worked. And I went to the pharmacy later that day to pick up those 90 Percocet that I had called in. Mm-hmm. And it worked. I pulled it off, man. I was like, yes, huh. I've uh-huh. got it. Now I can do this without, I don't need any stinking doctor. Huh. Well, that's a felony. That's a major, yeah, yeah. serious You're crime. that desperate, though, right? You need these pills. Yeah, I was that desperate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, 
there's, I don't think there's ever been anything in my life that's really intimidated me except that dope sickness that I knew that if I didn't get some Percocet or some form of opiates in my system, I was going to be sick beyond belief. And that sickness flat out made a coward of me and intimidated me to no end. So I was willing to break the law. Hmm. I was willing to go to jail to get arrested to get them. And that's how bad I was. And I guess to make a long story shorter, I was eventually arrested, I think, 25, 26, 27 times for wow. obtaining prescription by fraud. Wow. And and you would end up uh, serving some time. Uh, first of all, what did that do to you and your, in the, uh, I guess, I don't know how your family's reaction, but, uh, you know, how you had fallen at that point? It cost me everything I had. Yeah. It cost me everything. It cost me finances. I mean, I'm, you know, I got a big payout from Vince, yeah. um, you know, for that contract. But when you're not working and you're running all over the state, picking up fraudulent prescriptions and you're getting arrested, mm. um, your legal fees are pretty big uh, to, you know, to retain a lawyer and, and uh, I'm blowing all this money on pills and, so it, it literally, it, it cost me everything, yeah. finances, my freedom, my family, uh, my word, the ability to trust me. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're an addict and you're dealing with what you're dealing with, you'll lie, cheat, steal, rob, you'll do anything you've got to do to get your medicine and get your pills and to get your dope. And, uh, and you'll lie and steal from your own parents. Yeah. And unfortunately that's the road it took me down. Tells me everything. Yeah, and and folks, uh, if the, the the whole story and it's it's just fascinating. Besides so many other uh, great uh, moments in this thing, but uh, the DVDs that you had out and and the behind the mask, uh, Dell the Patriot uh, Wilkes uh, uh, story is it, ha- it has all, you know if you want to hear the whole story. But what is it, Dell, that that turned it around? I mean, what really you know when you had reached that that rock bottom, as we call it, and you started to stand up again, I guess is the best way to put it. Well, you know, there were a bunch of times, Sean, a bunch of times that I thought I had reached rock bottom. Yeah. Boy, this is it. Lord, if you'll help me out of this one, I'll never do it again. I mean, prison must and, have been a pretty... <laughs> yeah, and, 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 but, but you, yeah. Keep, you keep going past those rock bottoms, but eventually yeah. the one that got me was when I stood before a judge Mm-hmm. And I had been before this judge on several other occasions. Mm-hmm. He'd put me on probation or fined me or, you know, intensified my probation. And finally, I think it was my fourth trip in front of him. Mm-hmm. He looked at me and he said, Mr. Wilkes, I've done everything I can to help you. Mm-hmm. He said, the last thing I wanted to do this morning when I got up was come into this courtroom and send you to prison. Mm-hmm. He goes, but you, you, sir, have left me no choice. I sentenced you to five years in South Carolina Department of Correction, uh, suspended to 18 months. Mm -hmm. So I got an 18-month sentence, and I did almost a year Mm -hmm. uh, of it in prison. And um, I've I've told this story many times. um, I've got a wonderful mother, a godly mom, a good, wonderful example of, of how a Christian should live their life, and just a wonderful godly mom that's been a wonderful example for me and a great support and just a, a rock solid rock for me. Mm-hmm. 
And she told me one day, and she was crying when she told me. And at the time, I thought, how horrible of you to say that. She said, I pray every day that they'll lock you up and put you in prison. She knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. She said, because I would rather go visit you in a jail somewhere than to go put flowers on your headstone. Wow. And I said, how can you say that to me? Mm. That's a horrible thing to say. But she was right, and it did. It took prison. It took me getting locked up and finally being able to get clean and start thinking straight again, Sean. And I realized, okay, I'm going to get out of this prison in about a year, 11 months from now. And what am I going to do? Now I can go back to doing what I was doing. And I'll end up back here or I'll end up dead because you know this as well as I do that there are so many of my coworkers, my friends, men and women that died as a result of these same problems. For some reason, the Lord spared my life. So I'm either going to end up back here or I'm going to end up dead. And I don't want either of those. Mm -hmm. Well, then what do you do to overcome that? Then you've got to put this thing in your rearview mirror and uh, move on and uh, fortunately prison got me to that point where you know i was able to realize that wow and uh, turn it around uh i want to talk more about what you're doing today but before we we wrap it up because i know people want will want uh, me to have asked you this about your your time you talked about your time with the wwe and um the opportunities you had then but when you went back there it was your body just wasn't in the kind of shape to where you, you know, might have, if it maybe had been a few years earlier, but also uh, that experience with the WCW. Um, yeah, I mean, you had a three-year contract. I'm sure it must have been pretty lucrative, but you pretty much opted out and said, I would rather go to Japan uh, than be here in this, in this situation. What, uh, how bad was it and why didn't that work there? It was bad. It was, it was the worst environment that I worked in. Oh. I, I hated it there. Now, when I first got there, it wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was a pretty enjoyable place to work, uh, you know. I knew most everybody there. uh, But what changed it, and it was obviously a big move for the company, but their ability to to get Hogan and sign him away from Vince. Mm -hmm. And uh, once uh, Terry came in, and then the whole company, and and again, I I get it, I understand it. But the whole focus of the company became about Hulk Hogan and Hulk Hogan's buddies and those that kiss his butt and those that suck up to him. And so he brought a lot of that with him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just went to Eric one day. I said, listen, Eric, I said, man, I'm doing nothing here. You know, I'm in a tag team and, you know, you've thrown a bone or two our way by putting the belts on us, but yeah. tag teams mean nothing here now. Yeah. I didn't come here to be a tag team or I came to be a, you know, the working single matches. And I said, you're not doing anything with me or, or a bunch of us. I'm not one of Terry's friends. So I got a chance to go back to Japan. I'm going to be on the other side of the world working. Nobody in America is going to see me working on Japanese TV in no way, shape or form. Am I going to be a threat to you or, uh, anything. I said, so would you please let me out of the last year, year and a half of this thing and let me go back to work where I know I'll be happy and I can get used and get pushed and yeah. no, not going to do it. I said, okay. And uh, 
just a few weeks later, um, I was supposed to be at a pay-per-view somewhere. Uh, uh, I think it was a pay-per-view, and I um, I was on a plane to Tokyo, Japan. <laughs> and the only person outside of my wife, obviously, that I told was my partner, Bagwell Marcus. I owed it to Marcus to let him know, hey, buddy, when you get in the building tonight, I'm not going to be there. And they're going to ask you where I'm at. You can tell them whatever you want to tell them. But I'm going back to Japan, and I'm working in Japan, and Bob has given me another opportunity. So appreciate you, love you, but I don't want no part of that company, and yeah. I'm out. Wow. And uh, so that's what I did. Yeah. You know, you were you were uh, pretty damn young when uh, when you had to step away. I think you were, what, 38 or 39? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and a lot of people, you know, certainly wonder, I mean, God, you're still so remembered. I, I told you the play, my uh, um, questions just lit up when they when they found out we were going to be talking to you. Um, but uh, what a great career. And a lot of people wonder, you know, what might have been beyond that. But uh, really, it's it's you, you, visit the, you visited the depths of hell and you're back. Uh, you made it out. Um, and what are, you, what are you doing today? Uh, last week marked the 14th year that I have been uh, with a Nissan dealership mm-hmm. here in Columbia, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm in sales with them. It's a great company, and uh, I'm blessed uh, to do what I do. I've got a, I've, you know, I, being from Columbia and having played high school ball here and a very well-known high school player, then to go on to play at the university and, you know, one of the more decorated players that's ever played there, it opens a lot of doors for me, and it, it gives me access to a, a tremendous uh, opportunity, uh, customers. And so I've created a great customer base there. That, that name recognition has played such a vital role. And um, so it's um, I love it. I enjoy what I do. I'm a regular guy. Uh, I've got three wonderful children. I've got two granddaughters. Um, man, life couldn't be any better. I, I tell you, just this deal about uh, being a grandparent, mm-hmm. bro, there's nothing like it. It's, it's one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. Being uh, being Abigail and Garnet's papa is just probably one of the greatest titles I've ever had. Oh, being papa, that's I awesome. love it. And you still got your Gamecocks. I'm sure you uh, follow them pretty closely, huh? I do, um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And a matter of fact, just a couple of days ago, did a podcast that. Uh, recognized uh the 84 team mm-hmm. my senior year it's still to this day one of the greatest teams in school history so um we uh we had a big podcast that recognized and honored that team so yeah it's it's good it's um yeah. um i still love the gamecocks and college football and we're not that far from kickoff and i can't wait i know it's starting up again uh yes sir uh can folks still get the dvd at the uh Dell, the Patriot Wilkes.com behind the mask. Is that because uh, it's a, it's really folks. If you want to hear the whole story, uh, you got to sit down and watch it. I think it's about three hours long, right? Dell. Yeah, it's a, it's three discs. It's actually uh, all three discs total or seven hours. Um, oh, wow. Now yeah. one, one of the discs is, is nothing but matches. Right. Uh, and then the other two discs tell my story from birth to where we're at today. Huh. The good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between my wrestling career, my football career, uh, my family, and they can get it at www.dell, and that's D-E-L, dellthepatriotwilks.com, and they can get the DVD there. They can also get pictures and masks and T-shirts and uh, all sorts of merchandise, and uh, we'll autograph them and send them back to you. 
Yeah, and I know you're also pretty savvy on the social media. Still have the uh, the Twitter and uh, Facebook. Where yeah, can they Facebook, reach you there? Uh, Facebook, Dell Wilkes, uh, and then there's another Facebook page, Dell the Patriot Wilkes, and on Twitter, all caps, Dell Wilkes at Dell Wilkes, D E L W I L K E S. Well, Dell, this has uh, been an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, that's one thing I love about the podcast is so many people we bring on, it's not just about professional wrestling. It's about uh, inspiration. And there are people that have struggled and get up every time. And I hope that is the message that people continue to get from this podcast. And you certainly are a great example of that. Well, I appreciate it, Sean. And I I thank you very much for um, allowing me to come on the podcast and, and share my story. I, um, I appreciate it very much.